Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 14. If you're using a Red Pew Bible, that's on page number 926, 926 in the Red Pew Bible, or uh, turn and find your way in your own Bible, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 to 21, in which Jesus uh, performs a remarkable miracle, uh, providing for material needs, but also teaching His disciples their greater need uh, for spiritual uh, connection to Him. And so we all could take uh, great, we're going to all hopefully have uh, ourselves challenged in this text, and uh, but let's read it. I hope you found it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, what did He hear? He heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And then they took up 12 basketful of broken pieces left over. And those who, were, were, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Lord, give us eyes to see beyond the material, to be able to see you who created the stars, the seas, the crops that are in the fields, and help us to appreciate that while we are inundated with so much stimuli, Lord, help us to not become so fixated with what's in front of us that we forget to see you who are the transcendent one, the eternal one. And I pray, Father, that we would live our lives by faith in you, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and respond to your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. By the time Paul, the apostle, arrived in Rome in chains. He wrote to Timothy, and he told him of his circumstances and said that only Luke was with him. You know, when standing before a Roman judge, you really want to have all of your friends close. You want to have all of your amicus briefs in line. You want to have all of your friends there. And to stand alone and by yourself before the power of Caesar is a very intimidating thing. You know, some people do desert when persecution occurs. 
when that seed falls upon the ground and lands between the rocks, and the rocks put pressure on the root, there's this joyful growth and then a shriveling, persecution. It may shrivel up, but there are also thorns that can choke out the joy of following Christ. As he continued to write to Timothy, he also wrote of a young man named Demas, who was a mutual friend to Paul and Timothy, and he said to Timothy these painful words that, Timoth- that, that Demas himself had deserted Paul. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. You know, the parable of the sower that we looked at midsummer really sets up a lot of these incidents that follow in Matthew's presentation. And it's true, if you watch people, you'll see these effects take place in their lives. You don't rejoice in these things, you don't look with expectation, you want to hope that they wouldn't have these things happen in their hearts and lives. But if you watch people, you'll see it. Watch how people interact with truth. You present the truth and people become perhaps excited about what they at first hear, but then when persecution comes, they shrivel up and they fade away. Or perhaps they begin looking for alternative truths. They don't like what they've heard and they turn away from what they know is true and then their hearts become hard, and then they take offense, they become angry, and then they walk away. Matthew, I believe, is using the feeding of the 5,000 to demonstrate how easily it is, even for Christians who have been believers for a long time, to be choked up by the cares of the world, and so we miss, we don't see the spiritual truth that exists in Jesus. All of the immediate stimuli tends to overtake us, and like Demas, we can be overtaken by the cares of this world, and the simplicity of faith gets choked out. Just like children, you know, when they grow up, the children have such a beautiful innocence to the way they relate to the truths they hear about Jesus, and then as they get older, they become a little bit harder, a little bit more mature and they become more concerned with what's going on around them rather than that which they have to see with eyes of faith. And as we do get older as adults, material things tend to cause a lot more anxiety than they did when we were just simple little children. You know, we, we, we get anxious about, you know, as a new, new young adult, perhaps we worry about who we're going to marry or we get all anxious about the job that we need to fund the, the car that we want to buy, and we, we, we can't get out of this apartment, we want to get into a house, and we're, we're stretched, and we, we, we don't know what we should do with our money, and this was all true when I was a young adult. It was very difficult to keep our eyes upon Christ and be faithful to the things that I had been taught as a child. I had been taught as a child to give. I had been ca- taught to give of the first fruits to the Lord. And it was a very difficult time. And while when we were young, we recognized how important it was to give, it wasn't making it any easier. Well, I have had the privilege of seeing the Lord work in ways in which God has moved within our hearts and lives to give. And I have seen Him supply manna in the wilderness. 
I have seen him give in ways which always surprised us. We did not always have great savings. We did not always have the nicest of cars. We did not always have the funnest of vacations. But the cares of life were always there tempting us to look at the present and not see him who provides everything. We must never forget as old as we get in our relationship with Christ, that we still have to be like little children, and out of the innocence of our hearts, we have to submit our agendas to Him and give of ourselves freely and willingly to Him. Jesus is able to provide a feast in what we might say is a desert or a wilderness. And I want to emphasize this morning how important it is that we do not let the material world choke out the truth that we know to be true about Jesus. And so, in this text, I want to show you, I believe, how, how Matthew is teaching his disciples. Yeah, he's providing for the multitudes, but the immediate audience is his disciples, and he's showing them, I believe, in verses 13 through 14, in the, in the example that he provides, that the material world can affect all five of our senses. Now, let me read verses 13 and 14 again, and just note as I read it the emphasis upon the senses that are here. And when Jesus heard, as he heard the news about John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, uh, they, they, they followed him on foot from the towns, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, the six the sick are often very sensitive through their senses that they're not doing well. And in all of these ways, you see kind of this, this connecting point on senses, and the occasion for him to go away in the very beginning was because he had heard the news. He had heard the news about John the Baptist. Jesus heard that John was beheaded, and I do believe that this affected him emotionally. I think we forget that both, while both John and Jesus were public figures and they were on everyone's lips, they were still human. In fact, they were cousins. They had relationship that existed beyond the crowds and being in the limelight. You know, Jesus had friends that were outside of His immediate discipleship group. He had a friend named Lazarus that he went to his graveside, and he, when he saw the grave, what did Jesus do? He wept. He was affected. I find it very remarkable that while God, while Jesus was fully God, He was also fully human. And it's because of the senses that He withdrew from public view, and He found a desolate place, a place with he hoped, minimal activity. And this is very common. In fact, uh, Jesus did this as well after He was baptized by His cousin John. He immediately went into the wilderness, and that place was a place for Him to pray. It was a place for Him to find relief from the senses. 
And I think it's important that we don't overlook the obvious here. Matthew is emphasizing retreat from those things which draw the senses and distract. And the repetition of hearing and seeing, and as much as it is a gift to have eyes and ears, it is so often that we become blinded to that which is immaterial, that which is eternal, that which is transcendent. Uh, Nick Barna, a couple of uh, Wednesdays ago, was talking about how he had engaged a friend with the truths of the gospel. And his friend was a, a very successful engineer. And yet he considered himself to be atheist because he, he, he limited his suspicions about the eternal to what he could immediately see. He refused to look beyond what was observable. And in his case, the material world was all that really existed. The material world in extreme cases can really blind us to the one who has created the stars. We all have a Bluetooth, as it were, that kind of connects us to the God who made these things. We, we see these things and we start to ask questions, but the tendency is to suppress the truth that our senses reveal to us. But I want to say that Christians, we can also be blind. We can be spiritually blinding ourselves because we have such an attraction for fancy vacations. We have such a, an attraction for having a good job and an attractive family, and, you know, we want that trophy mount on the wall, and we want the early retirement. This whole world tells us that the good life, it resides in the material. Well, the good life itself is not in the material. Jesus properly chose to minimize the material so that he could go into a desolate place to get away, to have fellowship with the eternal, with his heavenly Father. To get away and to grieve and to, to pray and to spend time in communion with his heavenly Father, to him, was reviving. It was reviving. And I want to encourage you all to consider the actions of Jesus that as busy as this world gets, we have to take time in order to block out the material world. We have to be proactive, perhaps taking time in the morning to just simply allow yourself to be focused on the eternal, to that which matters. That might mean that for some of us, we don't actually pick up our phones as the first activity of the morning. What that might mean is that instead we, we open the Word of God and allow it to speak into our hearts the truths of the eternal. It might mean shutting the radio off if you go on a drive to work and purposely pushing yourself to block out what's going… I, I don't recommend closing your eyes as you drive. But what I do encourage you is perhaps taking with you a scripture to meditate as you go on your way. Pray to God and ask you to be a light in your workplace that morning. And you might look at me and say, oh, come on, well, you're in the office all week and you study and you got all the time, you've got the perfect life for, you know, being meditative. Well, I'm up during the work week. I get up at six in the morning 
and I have routines in the morning, and I know it's a struggle and it's a fight to keep that routine, but I do spend time in the Word every morning seeking to, to have a connection with God before I even go to prepare to speak to you. That's what's important. It's the most important thing. And this was Jesus' intention, was to get away. But when He got on the other side, He couldn't get away from the demands. And so I see this. I understand it's difficult. And Jesus saw people, people on foot carrying their sick, and He had compassion upon them. And I know that the material world around us makes a lot of demands, makes all kinds of demands upon us. I mean, get, I mean, school's going to start soon, and that changes everyone's routines for the morning. I get it. There's all kinds of things that we can't say no to, but there, there has to be somewhere in our lives where we block out and give time to relieve our senses of this material world and look upon the face of Christ. It's so essential. But through the seasons of busyness, Jesus did not overlook His own need, His own need to get away from the material world. And it's so important for fallen people. If it's true for Christ, how much more is it true for us? We need that time away. And so that we're not tempted to, to get worried about what's going on around us and thereby suppress the truth about our Heavenly Father. Now, verse 15, I see that, yeah, there's, there's this, this, this emphasis upon the five senses, but I also see here that there is this emphasis that, by the example of the disciples, that the material world can cause us to worry. It can cause us to worry. Uh, verse 15 says, now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over, send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves to eat. And I think we need to be sensitive to the overarching emphasis in the preceding chapter to allow it to help us to see the tone of voice that the disciples have here. There is an abruptness to how they talk to Jesus, their, their rabbi, which is actually inappropriate. They don't respectfully address Jesus here, actually. In my reading, I kind of read it gently, but there's really in it kind of more of a commanding of Jesus to like, they're telling him. They're telling him, okay, this is the time of day. Um, this is where we are, in case you haven't remembered where we are, and this is what you should do. And the disciples, they, they're not they're not supposed to just give orders to Jesus. But I see in this, their, their anxiety is starting to build, and there's this sensitivity to, how come Jesus doesn't see what we're seeing? We see a crisis building. How many times do we give orders to God? How often do we forget that God is God and we are not? When we are overcome by the material needs around us, we might be tempted to say, but God, there's inflation. Don't you see the inflation? Of 
course he does. Of course he does. Who do you think allowed it to happen? One of my favorite Old Testament stories is the crossing of the Red Sea. God lets Moses uh, lead the people out of slavery up into like a box canyon and like mountains on either side and then the, the sea before them, and they're, they're kind of caught, as it were, between a rock and a hard place. They literally were caught that way. And all of a sudden, there's this stampede that they can hear in the distance, and they, they look up and they see all of this, this cloud coming up, and they become anxious, and they, they behold the Egyptians marching after them, and they feared greatly. And Israel begins to worry, and they're filled with great anxiety, and that we know they're anxious because they say to Moses these words, they say, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have led us out to be slaughtered here, to die in the wilderness? Is that what this is all about? And Moses, in that moment, replies with a little bit more courage than, than he probably had he says to the people, he says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. Now, I believe Moses was fighting with himself. I believe he was captive to the anxious moments as well, because in the following verses, we hear Moses, or God say to Moses, why are you crying out to me? And I believe that Moses' humanity is just like ours. We may know the right things to say, but in our hearts, it's going bum, 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 bum. We live in a material world, and it's always pressing in upon us to cause us to be fearful and anxious when we should be talking to the eternal one. And our senses suggest that we might want to worry, and whenever that happens, we may find ourselves in a sinful suppression of the truth, and anxiety causes us to sin. No matter what the circumstances that are around us, we ought to be looking at the cross and the tomb and realizing that Jesus is always on the throne. That tomb is empty and it has been empty for over 2,000 years. He is Lord over all, and we don't need to be filled with anxiety. I'm speaking to myself here, folks. I'm human like yourself. I feel a lot like Moses at times. I'm saying the right things, but I'm worried inside. I also experience this. But the real danger is that the material world cannot, it may cause us to worry, and then we're at a point of pivot where we could go one of two directions. We may take our anxious cares to God, which is the right way, or we may step away and harden our hearts and begin to scoff, and that's a dangerous place to be. Verses 16 and 17, we see, I believe, the disciples starting to scoff. 
in verse 16, it says, Jesus says to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, I believe with a biting sarcasm, we have only five loaves and two fishes. And then he said, bring them to me. And I believe that the disciples here were tempted to scoff because they were looking at the material world and thinking, you've got to be crazy. And it appears that they are, they're concerned about Jesus' casual and unconcerned attitude. I mean, Jesus, it, it almost like he's putting them to the test when he says, you give them something to eat, right? What are we going to give them? We only got, you know, two fishes and these five loaves. You see, Jesus had not lost his true sense of his heavenly Father. His disciples were in a dangerous place suppressing the truth because they had allowed the material world to control their thoughts. They had apparently blocked out of their minds that the Son of God was with them. I mean, we had read back earlier chapters how Jesus was in the boat with them and he calmed the sea. Is this really too big for him? Now, I've used the word scoff because scoffing at the truth is good evidence that someone is hardening their heart. And this little incident in which Jesus kind of, like, says, hey, you give them something to eat, reminds me of the wilderness, you know, the larger wilderness, the one that's in the history of the Jews, the same wilderness that they walked into after Jesus, or, or God led them through the Red Sea. And I believe that Moses and the disciples were tempted, and the disciples here are scoffing, and bells should have been ringing in their ears. They had grown up with the Psalms. They had grown up with the truths that Moses had taught them. Psalm 78, verse 17 to 19 says, yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart, demanding food that they craved. And they spoke out against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? But yet, a greater than Moses was with them. A greater than Moses was with them. Yet they scoffed. Yet they scoffed. And scoffing is so dangerous because it indicates that you don't believe that God can actually do what He says He can do. If He desires to answer your prayer, He can very well spread a table in the wilderness. What else can God do if He really wants to? If He can turn water into wine, then why can't He convert your spouse If he can fill the widow's cruise of oil, then why can't he supply your need when you tithe? You see, the longer we are Christian, the more dangerous it can be to follow him. 
because we hear these stories in our youth and we are very tempted to say, yeah, but that's what I learned when I was a kid. No. Our Heavenly Father is eternal. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is always the same. And perhaps maybe you're 20 and 30 years a Christian, and you have seen God supply your need when you were younger. How is it so that He can't do it today? It's possible that we can harden our hearts. And Jesus had enough with His disciples. He said, bring me the loaves and fishes to me. That is always the answer. We always take our needs and our insufficiencies to Him. This has always been the answer. And we live in a material world that threatens to deprive us of the joy that we could have if we would but turn our lips to His ears. And the material world does threaten to deprive us of true joy. Verses 18 to 21, as the story concludes, I believe that there's, there's an important consideration that's going on here that we often, because we get so distracted on the material, that we don't properly value the spiritual. But that's where true joy exists. It's not immaterial gains. Yes, we need food to eat, we need a place to live, and we need clothes to wear. But that in itself is an inadequate substitute for the joy that can be yours in relationship with God who is eternal. When you see people become born again, when you see people changing and growing, and you see in your own personal relationships with others changes taking place, that's, in, that's enriching. That is what's, what's worthwhile. I, I know that my own heart, I have to guard myself to think, what is most worth living for? It's so easy so easy. But I want you to notice there's a real contrast that takes place here. And you see in verse 18, a contrast occurs because we were just, in the previous incident, we were in a banquet hall. We were in Herod's banquet hall, and there was free flowing of wine, and there was abundance, and there was dancing, and there was partying going on. There was Herod was like the host with the most, but here we see Jesus blow Herod away. It says in verse 19, and then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking five loaves and two fishes, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Who is the host with the most? It is Jesus. Herod is a, a shallow attempt to, to be like the king of heaven. 
And it's not incidental, actually, that in these verses we actually hear the echoes. We hear the echoes of the Last Supper. If you listen carefully, I think you can hear them. And when he had taken the bread, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the bread. And he gave it to the disciples who then gave it to the crowds. Why might this be the case? Because the supper which they partook of leads us to consider that there is an even greater supper that brings the greatest of all satisfactions. In John's gospel, John had a different tact when he described the, the feeding of the 5,000. He was very explicit, actually, that when the crowds came to follow Jesus, those crowds came looking for him because they wanted more to eat. And in that sixth chapter, Jesus stops them and says, okay, you want to be fed with, with these, this, this food? You want your, it filled your belly. But I've got something that will fill your heart. It's eternal. It's greater because I am the bread of life. You would think that those who were recipients of the physical bread would be able to open their eyes with the heart and see the true spiritual bread that they desperately needed. Jesus was very explicit. He said, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And He is the one who will provide that which will cause them not to be hungry, and they will be fully satisfied. Now, He's speaking metaphorically in John chapter 6. He's talking about His death and his burial, his resurrection. And Jesus says these words which shock his hearers because they're thinking purely in material terms. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's speaking in material metaphor of the spiritual. See, the material world all around us wants to deprive us of that which truly matters. True joy is found in fellowship with Jesus around His table. We live in a very, a material world that's very actively trying to get our hearts. And as a pastor, I have observed the material world attacking congregations and trying to cause them to be much more passive about their worship. We, we can become very enthusiastic, very active in material pursuits, so much so that we don't treat the Lord's table with the proper place that it deserves. Just recently, I've shared with our members my concern that as a body, we need to be taking a much more active approach to our worship. We ought not be sliding into the service passively, but be active in our readiness to receive the Word and to participate 
in spiritual food. The Lord's table is not something to be taken lightly. In fact, it is something very little. It is small. It might even seem to be irrelevant. There's much more important things that we should be doing. But let me ask you, were the two loaves and five, excuse me, the five loaves and two fishes irrelevant in God's hands? They weren't. But in the Lord's hands, they become miraculous. And I fear that at times we, we approach the table out of routine. And I don't want to bring to your mind anything in regard to transubstantiation or anything like that. But this is a spiritual event. These are memorial pieces which figure a spiritual truth that transcends the five senses. And we may become so calloused to our participation, we have to be very careful that we put it in the right place. Paul said that some people eat at the table in an unworthy manner. In other words, they don't take it seriously. They don't consider that this is an opportunity to reflect upon their standing with Christ and to, to confess sin and to make relationship right with other people. And Paul said, there's a reason why some of you are sick. There is a reason why some of you are not healthy. It's because they have hardened their hearts. And I believe that as we approach the table, we have to take great care to examine our hearts and be more active rather than passive. You'll hear a little bit in email this week some of the changes that we're going to make regarding to encourage us all to consider carefully our own hearts to make sure that when we come in to participate with the Lord's table that we are spiritually ready to receive and I ask patience with our church family as we do this. Perhaps it may be a trial period, but it may be something that would allow us to just to, to kind of recalibrate how we're thinking about the Lord's table. And I would encourage you to take time to really reflect. Every month we do this on the first Sunday of the month. As you come to worship, are you just sliding into your church clothes? Or are you coming with your heart? in order to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. See, true joy comes in trusting Jesus for that which we don't see. This is the whole event. We don't see even the, the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. We don't, we don't see those things even. To, we have to look at them through images. But the heart tells us and communicates, the Holy Spirit communicates within ourselves that these are true and these matter more than the material around us. They remind us not to let the, the world choke out the truth. And so this morning, as we come to the end of our service, I pray that we would fight to prioritize the truth. We would fight 
to prioritize spiritual worship, that we would make our time together of utmost importance, that we would treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, know Him, that our material things are not as important to us. We, we give them to, to Him because He is so much more important. We demonstrate through spiritual disciplines by taking time away that He is what, who matters. And so I pray that we would not let the material world choke out the truth. Let's pray.